We're walking through this Lenten season, the book of Micah, a book that deals with a theme that Jimmy Carter himself, when inaugurated as president in 1977 in January of that new year, had that portion of the Bible opened up, Micah 6, 8. He has shown thee, O man, because it was King James, what is good and what does the Lord requireth of thee but to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. We're talking about what it is to walk humbly with God, what it is to act with the wide-eyed attentiveness that justice requires and to be propelled with the energizing force of mercy, gut-shaking compassion for others. And as we look at this passage in Micah chapter 5 that Debbie just read, we see a promise that uses similar words and similar ideas that are being readily and often spouted off even during the election season, which I think there's an election in November, but it just seems like now there must always be an election tomorrow. There are a lot of debates and a lot of candidating, and it seems to never stop. Praise be to God. But there's this sense when you listen, when you listen to the things at stake and the, the fervor, the violence, the promises, the anger, the hopefulness, the vision casting that's being done, you realize that this political realm and the religious realm are very closely connected because what people in our country right now and people in every country do is they, they hope that the leadership of the country will bring about some cure for what ails them. That it will be their action that will somehow implement some kind of soothing to the unquietness in their souls. That will bring some kind of security to the things that cause anxiety in their lives that keep them up at night. And even in our literature, we've recognized over and over again, even Disney has done this, that the way a country goes, the way a province goes, the way a place goes, have so very much to do with its leadership. If you don't believe me, watch The Lion King and see what happens when Mufasa takes over the Badlands. When there is no more flourishing and there is no more green grass, just patches of dirt and cackling hyenas. Or what happens when the white witch takes over Narnia? And it's always winter, but never Christmas. And Lord help you if you're a little fawn named Tumnus. You've heard these stories before, eh? Well, in Israel, it was no different. There was this sense. There was this sense that the, that the welfare of God's people depended very much on the the fitness of the king. The success or the failure of the king had so very much to do with the, the destiny 
of the people over whom he was king. And Israel had fallen into a sorry state of affairs. It's part of Micah's savory job as a prophet is calling out all the ways of failure. Like a good football coach, he's letting them know just how rotten they are and how rotten things have become. Marshal your troops, O city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. The vision of the royal king of God who is representative of God when he takes the throne is that he, with his scepter, will strike Israel's enemies on the jaw. And Micah is helping the Israelites know as they await deportation, as they are being taught to expect and understand why they have seemingly been abandoned by God, that things are so sorry, not only does their king not strike his enemies on the jaws, but he is humiliated himself, being punched in the face, as it were, with an Assyrian Donald Trump. Thank you, there are three of you paying attention. (laughs) And as we listen to this, there is a promise, though. There is a promise that the abandonment will end. There's a promise that the suffocating darkness of night will be stopped for the healing refreshment of morning. And it will be after a time of waiting when there will be a new shepherd or a new king for the people of Israel who will stand and shepherd his flock skillfully in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he, we're told, will be their peace. There's two points today, two large points. The first is this. As we accept this invitation to adopt this picture, this trust, and this king who is shepherd over his people, It's one, it's okay not to be okay. And two, you are invited to accept the skillful shepherding of Jesus. It's okay not to be okay, and you are invited to accept the skillful shepherding of Jesus. First, it's okay not to be okay. I think it's important to recognize that Micah has this unenviable task, a task about which he says, He is going to wail, about which he says he is going to mourn. I will weep and wail and go about barefoot and naked. I will howl like a jackal. I will moan like an owl, for her wound is incurable. The prophets, Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet. Rembrandt painted a picture of him. The prophets wept. Because they were so keenly aware of the unwellness of the world. I asked our deacons the other day, as we're listening to these sermons, what do you think that justice is? What does justice mean? And one of them wisely said, it's a lot easier to notice injustice than to notice justice. Whether you can put a finger on it or not, there's something that happens when you look at this picture. When you look at something happening in the world, you look at some kind of abuse or some kind of somebody being disadvantaged or 
disregarded or thrown away as a person. And you say, that's not right. The prophets had been given a vision and a calling and an enviable one to say over and over again, you've closed your eyes. You've plugged up your ears. You're not watching anymore. The world is full of unwellness. And so Micah shows us, and even as he says, Israel's going to be abandoned for a time until there is a reunion of the northern and the southern tribes and his brothers return to join the Israelites. Your ruler is going to be chopped down. Your city is going to be destroyed. There's this recognition that things are not okay. Now, we know very well, because we've been around the Christian church and we've hung around the Bible a little bit, we recognize that this ruler that was to come from Bethlehem, this small little tribe, we recognize him as this Jesus Christ of Nazareth who we're told and who reveals himself as good shepherd, who has been banished for us, who has taken our abandonment from God on himself so that we will never be fully abandoned by our God. But his kingship, which has been inaugurated, has not yet been realized everywhere. And until it is, we're told, we will live securely when his greatness reaches the ends of the earth. That the peace we long for, the absence of humiliation, the flourishing where each man and each woman has their enough. The conversion of AR-15s to gardening tools to weed whackers and gardening implements. All of that will happen when the kingship of Jesus has destroyed all his enemies and everybody gladly submits to him with a new heart. But that hasn't happened yet. And so until then, things are not okay. This is why the Bible urges us to mourn with those who mourn. This is why the Psalms are full of people moaning, armed with promises from God saying, why have you fallen asleep on your promises? Why do I have to sleep in a bed of tears? Why do I have to deal with these headaches? Why do I have to deal with the aggravation of my employees not doing what they're told? Why do I have to reckon with cancer and cancerous addictions in my own life? Why? It's okay, though, we're told, not to be okay. You're going to experience unokayness until the reign of Jesus, till this great skillful shepherd has fully set up his kingdom globally everywhere. Where's a place where you might experience that? For instance, your marriage. I heard a guy the other day say, very perceptively, we've been married almost 40 years, and we should have been divorced 17 times. And I thought that was a very prescient statement. And a universal one. Those of you who are newly married, those of you who are considering marriage, those of you who are considering not marriage, anybody who's honest about it, who's been married for 40 years, will say we should have been divorced at least 17 times because they've learned that the way to not get divorced is to stay married. (laughs) 
It works every time. But if you think that your marriage is going to bring you lasting security, that somehow or another this, this man who looked so good on his wedding day and then turned out like this <laughs> is going to somehow heal you or fix you, you're going to be injured a lot. Ask Kathy. Ask any married person. But it's okay not to be okay. It's okay to recognize I have an invitation to accept another picture. I don't look for other people to be my entire healing. Substantial healing, sure. Bring me refreshment, sure. I can bring them refreshment, absolutely. But they can't heal my unwellness altogether. Nor can me getting into the right college or me getting the house I've always wanted or finally finding the job that that just satisfies me so deeply. There's going to be all manner of unwellnesses and not rightnesses. And some of it ought to be happening. We ought to own it. We ought to weep over it. We ought to complain about it to God. You're going to, or at least you should, find that it's not okay. There are people who don't have your same color skin, who don't have as much money in the bank as you, who didn't get to grow up in the same kind of family as you, whose life stinks in ways that yours doesn't. And that's not okay. And we're the people to be troubled by that. I saw a story, a children's book, where children were dealing with a substantial loss in their family. And here's the advice they were told. Cry, heart, but do not break. Cry, heart, but do not break. See, that is the solace and the opportunity that is offered to those who will accept the skillful shepherding of Jesus is this recognition that there is going to be profound loss that happens to me. There is going to be profound aggravation. I'm going to walk out into the world tomorrow to a place that is not cooperating with my intentions and aspirations. And you may notice that sometimes when you pray, you get even more anxious because sometimes we're sheep. And sheep advising shepherds about what needs to happen is not always the most fruitful enterprise. We don't know what needs to happen, but we're convinced that we do. You know, sheep are always heralded, anybody who's worked with them knows, as very fragrant creatures who are brilliant. Thank you again, seven of you. This extra hour hurts, man. (laughs) Sheep, to put it technically, are stupid. And they smell bad. And Jesus likes them. But they don't always know what's best for them. They sometimes wander off. They sometimes get stuck in things. It's like the goat at the end of our street who one day we saw with his head. Well, he got his head through the gate, but then he righted it, and then he was stuck. So you just stay in pocket. Stupid goat. No, we didn't mock it. These animals sometimes don't know the best way for them, neither do we. 
It's okay not to be okay. Cry, heart, but do not break. We have one who has been broken for us. We have one who has assured us that there is a kind of skillful care, a kind of amazing guidance, a kind of sure protection that he means for us to enjoy if we should accept the invitation, which is the second point. You're invited to accept the skillful shepherding of Jesus. The Israelites were given a picture, which was an invitation to lean into, to say, if you'll believe this picture, you won't break entirely, even though you moan and cry about being kicked out of the land. Even though the temple is destroyed, even though it seems that God has turned his back on you. You will not break. If you keep this picture in mind, you'll cry, yes, but you will not be utterly demolished because there is a king coming. And this language is something that was always in, well, after the people rejected God and wanted a king in the first place, God adopted this as his means. He said, this is how I'm going to regulate. This is how I'm going to govern. This is how I'm going to shepherd my people in the ancient Near East. And in Israel, especially Israel, where they were very close to the whole enterprise of shepherding. So they never lost the metaphor that kings were called shepherds. It's a powerful metaphor to recognize how bound up their well-being has to be with the well-being of those under their care. And when Micah says, from you, Bethlehem of Epaphrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler of Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. He's going back to a promise that God made to King David, who was just a little shepherd boy, out playing in the fields, out watching sheep and fighting for their protection and losing sleep as he watched them through the night. And God picked this little king to be the man after his own heart. And he promises him in 2 Samuel 7, you will never fail to have a man on the throne. The Davidic line of royal kingship will never stop in Israel. And that's what Micah's talking about. There's going to be this king. And Israel kept looking over and over and over again for someone whose shoulders were broad enough to wear the mantle that had been depicted for them, someone who was going to bring about universal peace, who was going to bring widespread disarmament, who was going to subdue all enemies everywhere without using a nuclear bomb, someone who was going to create an economy that left nobody out so that just the rich didn't just get richer and the poor poor, but everybody really did thrive at the same time they looked for a king who was going to do this. But none ever showed up until Jesus, who comes and says, everybody who came before me was a hired hand. You can't expect, if you're paying somebody $7 an hour to run your Burger King, you can't expect them to bend over backwards for it. And he says, everybody who's coming before me is a hired hand. They don't care about the sheep. They're getting a paycheck. I love the sheep more than my own life. And I've invited them to come in to go out and to have pasture, to have life and to have it to the full, to have the protection of knowing when they hear my voice, they are wanted. And the question is, will you let yourself be shepherded 
by the strength of the Lord, by the greatness of His name, so that you can live securely. Right now, many of us do this thing that I read about this week. It's a great line. I've never heard it before. Where we practice a psychological concept known as awfulizing. You ever awfulized anything? Sammy Rhodes says, don't tell me, spell check, that awfulizing isn't a word. It's like my signature move. Because awfulizing is like what it sounds like. Another way of saying it is catastrophizing. I love making up words. This is funner than Dr. Seuss. But awfulizing is when you look out into your future and you just start to anticipate that everything's going to be awful all the time. And you live in the awfulness of it. You live in the dread of it. You expect nothing good to happen. You expect no redemption to happen. You expect no resources to be present. You expect a completely godless, fog-covered future. None of you do that, but there are people in books who do that. And movies. And they're not just millennials. A lot of us awfulize and catastrophize and do a lot of what-ifing. We assume that the way we happen to feel about a thing is the definitive word about it. It's characteristic of modern people, says Tim Keller, that we think that the only thing that's real is how we happen to feel about a thing. Have you ever been in a car driving or being driven? And maybe you fall asleep. You fall asleep and, and suddenly... Something happens. Maybe nothing happens. But you suddenly wake up and you go, stop, 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 stop. Or you wake up and your heart is beating out of your chest because you're sure you're about to careen off the mountain. And the person driving is like, chillax, dude, or dudette. You think you're about to die because you just woke up. But that's just because you haven't been paying attention. Someone else has been paying attention, though. Your feelings are lying to you at that moment. They're telling you something is true, and they're physiologically convincing you with the rapid heart rate and the increase of blood pressure and the cold sweat and the cursing. And it's not true. People who start to believe that there is a Reality is saying, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. He leads me beside quiet waters. People who learn, I can entrust myself to him. I can talk to him more than I talk to anyone else. I can confer with him more than I confer with anyone else. I can start to get a confidence that I will not face one single minute of the rest of this day or tomorrow without his watch care. He doesn't even nap. He's constantly watching. He's constantly vigilant. And he's strong. He holds the world in his hand. You can even start to believe, as one psychiatrist, a psychologist I heard say, in the middle of a panic attack. He said, I would dare to say sometimes to a person who's had a panic attack, and maybe you've had them and you know what it's like. He says, even though your amygdala It's shooting signals right now to your whole body telling you that the world is falling apart, that the sky is falling, and you're about to fall through it. And it's convincing you your heart is racing. 
The terror is closing you up. Do you realize that nothing has changed about the shepherding care of your Savior? You're in a world being held up by Him. You're just not believing it. Your body is telling you something different. But it's not telling you the whole truth. God's people who say, you know what? I want to accept the invitation to be skillfully shepherded by Jesus can start walking through fearful things. Anxious things. Into situations where they don't know what to do, but they know they have to follow their shepherd there. And they don't let their own internal state dictate what they will and will not do. They listen to his voice. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. Oh, some of us, if we would start to accept his shepherding care and we start to say, as we walk out into the world, Lord, let me hear your voice today. Let me follow your lead today. Let me be an instrument of refreshment as we talked about earlier today. Let me be someone who enters into the fray and shows the shepherding priorities of God to others. Let me be someone like that. Let me not be someone who succumbs to awfulizing and catastrophizing and what ifing. See, Jesus has convinced us as a shepherd. He has told us now the question is, will you accept the invitation? He has said, there's nothing that's going to happen to you that isn't part of some elaborate plan that I'm up to. There's no harm that will befall you that won't ultimately, in some stunning way, be for your good and the good of the world. No matter how dark it gets, there is ultimately nothing that will sever you from my unquenchable determination to interfere with your commitment to trust other things and not me. God is a God of interference and interruption because he's a good and skillful shepherd who doesn't want you to run off. I watched the other day a little girl running. Sure, she was going to face plant as she ran in her sundress, her hair flowing two feet, three inches tall wearing cowboy boots. How else would you run? Sundress and cowboy boots. Running full speed. And I jokingly remarked, she seems so uptight. And someone said, that's the first time I've ever seen her wear shoes. And I said to her mother, something poetic and elegant as I'm wont to say, my goodness, she seems so carefree as like she's a well-shepherded little girl as she kind of rolled down a hill. And her mother said, oh, it's unbelievable. And then she told her to give me a hug. And she came up and she gave me a hug and squeezed me tight. And I said, do you know who I am? And she said, no. <laughs> but she wasn't scared. And I think, what a picture. A shepherded little girl acting carefree We can't only act carefree because there are a lot of things that require our care. There are a lot of sorrows into which we need to enter following our shepherd. But he has promised us that the stuff that we awfulize about the most, our provision, what's going to happen to us, our life, what we're going to wear, how we look, what our future is going to be, he has promised 
if you submit yourself, if you heed the invitation to come to me, says Jesus, over and over and over again, if you accept his skillful shepherding in your life and become convinced of his strength, become convinced of his goodwill, become convinced of the fact that he will lead you and guide you and his spirit lives in you to move you to walk in his ways. If you become convinced of these things, you don't have to live like everybody else. He says that worrying and awfulizing and catastrophizing, these are things that people get to do who have no shepherd. Pagans, he calls them. Of course pagans have to worry, but shepherded people don't. But we have to accept the invitation. I close with this. I was thinking about elements of my life, things I got to do that I... Wouldn't have otherwise, I, oh man, I lost my list. See, I'm going to drop my pieces of paper. What did I get to do? Well, let's see if I can remember. Because it was my life. I have slept on an air mattress at King College in a group of young people at Christian conferences. I have listened to the young vocal croonings of David Wilcox at McDivs in Black Mountain, North Carolina. I have played Miss Pac-Man at a hotel in Jekyll Island, Florida, wandering around with my good friend. I have run on the same lighthouse deck that Forrest Gump ran on in Port Clyde, Maine. I have been in a car wreck with D. James Kennedy of, you know, whatever show he's on, The Hour of Power or something. No, what was that? It was something else. That was, that was the other dude. That was the other dude. Sorry. Sorry, D. James. <laughs> that was Robert uh, Schuler. Yes. Different guys all together. I've been in a fender bender with D. James Kennedy at an evangelism explosion training-wise. We were on our way to the Everglades to the house of an National Hockey League player whose wife had called to have D. James Kennedy come there and convert her pagan brother-in-law and and sister-in-law who lived in New York. And he did it. After the wreck. It wasn't a bad wreck. I've flown in a helicopter that had no doors. All of these things and more. I had a much better list, much more compelling. But I've lost it. So, All of these things, you know how they happen? I never would have done them without someone inviting me to do them. I did them because somebody said, would you like to do this? And at the moment, so many of them, I don't know. And some of them, I thought, oh, that sounds awesome. But none of them happened without someone asking me to do them first. They were an invitation. And you know, it's very interesting that That's what Jesus gives us. He says there's so much about your life that is going to be way different than you ever imagined. Richer, fuller, more abundant, more resourceful, more resilient in the face of trouble, in the face of your not-okayness, where you can cry, but your heart won't be totally broken if you will accept my invitation to shepherd you. Perverse and foolish, oft I strayed, but yet in love 
he sought me, and on his shoulder gently laid home rejoicing, he brought me. Anybody who starts to believe that this shepherd is concerned with what's happening tomorrow morning when you go to work, and is concerned about what's happening in your marriage where you might be on situation 15 of when you should get divorced, or who's concerned about your concern for the people who can't make ends meet, for whom their life is just one series of calamities after another, you start to accept this invitation of the skillful shepherding of Jesus, and then you start to mimic it. You become a free person or a freer person, and then you start to invite people into it as well. Try it this week. Invite somebody into your life. Invite them to your house. Invite them to church. Invite them to Easter services. Invite them to your small group. Invite them to lunch. As terror-producing as that might be for some of you. And trust that the shepherd who cares for his flock and has promised them abundance is right there with you. Through the darkest night, through the most refreshing days, you will never stop being skillfully shepherded until you are home. Will you accept the invitation? Will you invite others in on it? I hope you will. Amen.